Hello, everyone, and welcome to the last episode of the Speaking for Him podcast for the year 2021. If you were with us last year, you know that I wrapped up the year by sharing with you a retrospective show that had clips from some of the best shows that we did in 2020. Well, I will be repeating that process for 2021, and I'm excited to dig into those with you. But first, let's talk about what is going on. The first thing I want to mention to you today is that on Tuesday, December 28th, we were informed that the football world has lost a legend. Well, tonight, the sports world mourning the loss of beloved coach and broadcaster John Madden. The Bay Area legend died today at the age of 85. KPX5's Andrea Nakano joins us with a look at Madden's lasting impact on the NFL and beyond. Yeah, John Madden was football, and for fans here in the Bay Area, he was their Hall of Fame coach that brought Raider Nation its first Lombardi trophy. A colorful character in the broadcast booth in his later years, it was John Madden's competitive demeanor on the sidelines as head coach of the Oakland Raiders that endeared him to football fans everywhere. Madden caught the eye of Raiders owner Al Davis, who hired him as linebacker's coach in 1967. Two years later, 32-year-old John Madden would become the youngest head coach in the National Football League. Madden's blue-collar attitude and free spirit rubbed off on his players, and that was a recipe for success for the silver and black as the Raiders won seven division titles in his first eight seasons there. Four times Madden's Raiders would lose in the playoffs to the eventual Super Bowl champion, but in 1976, things would finally go the Raiders' way. After losing just one regular season game, they faced their conference rival Pittsburgh Steelers in the AFC Championship game and beat Pittsburgh to advance to Super Bowl XI in Pasadena. The Silver and Black beat the Vikings 32-14, to giving the Raiders their first Super Bowl championship. After 10 seasons at the helm in Oakland, Madden walked off the sidelines for the last time in 1978. In 2013, he spoke to KPIX 5's Vern Glenn about the secret to his success. What was the driving force? What was what was the fire in the belly that kept you going? Uh, probably just wanting to be the best. I mean, I always, I always wanted to win. You know, that even... Even, you know, as a little kid, you know, and, you know, flipping, you know, milk tops or cards or whatever, I wanted to win everything. And I think I think that's important because, you know, I mean, everyone probably wants it, but then I wanted it so bad I was willing to work for it. I was willing to put the work in to make it happen. Madden then found a new passion, one that would put him in the homes of nearly everyone in America and the hearts of football fans everywhere. Madden began a second career in the broadcast booth, pioneering the kinds of breakdowns we're used to seeing today. This is a father bucket. This is a mother bucket. And since the last game, they had a baby bucket. Madden was tapped to broadcast 11 Super Bowls, Monday Night Football, and maybe more notably Thanksgiving, where he would be 
begin a tradition that continues today, awarding turkey legs to the most valuable players of the winning team. His lovable persona brought him numerous endorsement deals, and in 1988, he was immortalized as one of the greatest selling sports video games of all time. And with well over 100 million copies sold to date, the game affectionately known as Madden. It was in 2006 that Madden was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Fittingly, he rode his cruiser to Canton, Ohio for the enshrinement ceremony. Andrea, thanks so much. Definitely a legend. Now, you may be wondering why I would put this on the Speaking for Him podcast. The reason is actually quite simple. Uh, John Madden, I think, is one of the early voices that gave me a love for broadcasting. I remember sitting and watching John Madden call games with my dad, especially on Thanksgiving, and just being like, how cool is that? I could do that. And I remember as a kid wanting to be a sports broadcaster and really thinking that that would be an awesome thing. And that really led me down the road of broadcasting to where I then wanted to be a DJ for Christian radio and now I'm a podcaster and still kind of aspiring to be a DJ someday in a Christian radio capacity. Uh, but John Madden was definitely one of those early voices that spoke into my desire to do broadcasting. And so I was very blessed uh, by his ability and I just had a lot of fun watching him call games and do it with such skill and enthusiasm and happiness. And the other aspect that I want to bring out is that John's death um, tells us that we don't know when we will be going to meet the Lord, when eternity will begin. I can't tell you how many times in the stories that I've read about his death, I read the word unexpected. You know, some people were speculating that maybe he had a long-term illness but if he did, the word unexpected would not be used as often as it was. So we don't know when our end will come. And I don't know what John's spiritual state was. I don't know if he knew the Lord Jesus. If he did, he's in Jesus' presence right now. If he didn't, he's doomed to an eternity in hell. And those are just the facts on the two realities of where we can go at the end of life. And so my encouragement to you would be that whether you will be here for another day or another 50 years, that you will trust Christ and allow him to guide whatever time you have, because that is when you will have good success. And, and that is when you will be fulfilled and you will have peace in your life is when you're following closely to Jesus. My ministry has not expanded or grown at the rate that I would like it to at this point, but I know that the things that I'm doing ministry-wise are things that God has called me to do, and there's a certain level of peace that comes with that that would not be present were I to be doing anything else. The next uh, thing I want to talk about is a story that comes out of North Carolina, and here we see a sheriff taking a stand against the Freedom From Religion Foundation. 
Columbus County Sheriff Jody Green says he has no plans to remove a Bible verse on a wall at the sheriff's office. He says the verse was paid for by private money and believes the uproar is political in nature. The Bible verse came into question after the Freedom From Religion Foundation wrote a letter to the sheriff citing First Amendment issues with the separation of church and state. Now, sheriff Green responded to a story saying in a statement posted to the sheriff's office Facebook page, and this is a quote, the verse is one of my favorite Bible verses, and it seemed fitting for all the adversity I have had to endure. It is very motivational to me and my staff. Here at the sheriff's office, he continued, we work hard in everything that we do before we execute a search warrant or any service that puts our people in immediate harm's way. We always go to the Lord with a group prayer. Always. End quote. The group tells us it is exploring its legal options. They also say the Facebook post from Sheriff Green will be included in any future pot potential litigation. Let me just say that this is the latest example of our society waking up with their perpetually offended mindset. This is a situation where a group of people have just decided to make life difficult for someone who is trying to do their duty on their job. I want to ask a hypothetical question, and if someone wants to answer it literally, I would encourage you to contact me at the end of the show. I really want to know this. What is the worst thing that could happen if you allowed Philippians 4.13 to stay up in that sheriff's department? What is it that you as an atheist or that these atheists fear about having that verse up in the sheriff's department? The fact of the matter is that as a society, we are careening into chaos. Why is that? Because we have abandoned any moral standard that we once had. And I know everybody has personal morals, but in order for a society to succeed, a fixed moral standard is necessary. Remember that the Declaration of Independence stated, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The way that we often look at laws today is... We say, well, this is what the government allows you to do. And the reality is the Founding Fathers understood that the government should not be in the business of granting rights. The government should be in the business of preserving rights that are given by God. And that's a huge distinction. So that's the first thing I would say. Because it would be far more ironic and quote-unquote offensive, if instead of Philippians 4.13, the verse on the wall of the police department, or the sheriff's department, as the case may be, was, be sure your sin will find you out, which is what Moses told the Israelites in Numbers. So, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out uh, why this would be so offensive. It seems to me that Jody Green is a very principled leader and he is fixing 
his moral leanings on the unchangeable Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said that even with all the changes, that he would change uh, never, that he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in my mind, if this sheriff wants to fix his eyes on Jesus as he goes about his duties, that is an awesome thing. I applaud him for his principled stand. I hope that he will stay strong and not bow to pressure. Now, legally, he may be asked to take this down. I pray that that does not happen, and I will support him in any legal effort that may ensue as he tries to keep it up. But can we just think about also the fact that we? this is also another example of what is largely known as the tyranny of the few. Like the vast majority of people probably do not have a problem with this verse and this stance by the sheriff. But these few people in the Freedom From Religion Foundation, they want to make an issue of this because it points to God. And some people, even in the comments some that even claim to be Christian, cite separation of church and state as a reason that this sheriff should do what this association wants. But I want to encourage and remind you that the separation of church and state does not appear in the Constitution, and when it is cited by Thomas Jefferson, his reason for citing it is to encourage people that the U.S. is not going to choose a state church. So the separation of church and state, as Thomas Jefferson understood it, was to protect the church from the state, not to protect the state from the church. And that's an important distinction, because we need to get past this idea that our religion shouldn't influence our daily life. If your quote-unquote religion does not impact your daily life, then what is the point of it? I mean, that that's the essence of what this comes down to. My relationship with Jesus Christ affects every part of my life, so I can't go into any job or duty promising people that my quote-unquote religion won't affect the way things go, because it affects everything I do. It affects um, what I choose to spend my time on. It affects what I choose to spend my money on. It affects how I treat people. All of those things are affected by my relationship with the Lord Jesus. So, Sheriff Jody Green, I am very proud of you, and I hope that you will stand pat, and I hope that this effort by the devil ultimately will come to naught. I'm excited to jump into today's main topic, uh, but before we do that, I'm going to share with you our quote of the day. And our quote of the day comes from one of our founding fathers, and that is Benjamin Franklin. And he, here is what he said about how we should start each new year. Benjamin Franklin said this, Be at war with your vices, at peace with your neighbors, 
and let every new year find you a better person. And I think there's good application for us as believers here because if we are striving to follow Christ, he will have free reign in our lives to make changes that we cannot make ourselves. In the book of Romans, we read that one of God's biggest goals for us is to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's a journey, and it will not be completed this side of glory. But if we trust him, he will do what he will with us. The Bible says that it is God who worketh in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we can trust that he has our best interest at heart. So as we dig into this highlight reel special of 2021, I want to bring you to the very first interview that I did this year, and it was with a friend of mine, Danielle Aries, who I've actually been friends with since I was a teenager and she was a very young girl because our mothers are best friends. And Danielle came on to my show because I had found out just a month or two previous, she was a content creator with a YouTube channel. And beyond that, she talked about a struggle she had with selective mutism. Well, I can definitely relate to um, coming to know the Lord at a young age and then having to come to grips with some difficulties. Mine were physical um, and, and just just uh, believing God when he said that I was fearfully and wonderfully made, that was really difficult for me. Um, and when I was a young teen, I, I hit rock bottom after my brother passed away and, and really felt like life wasn't worth living. But I'm thankful mm-hmm. that God pulled me out of that and um, gave me a ministry. Um, and so I, I really, I see similar things in, in your life. You go from this youth that struggles with selective mutism and all of a sudden a while back, I'm not exactly sure when I realized that you were doing YouTube videos. And so <laughs> yeah. can you tell us about how your YouTube channel came to be? Yeah. So, um, I, like I said, I dealt with selective mutism for a long time and I really didn't even know what selective mutism was. So that's really, that was really difficult for me knowing that I was, I knew I was different from other people just being so frustrated with why can I not talk to people? Because when you have selective mutism, you really want to, you still have all these thoughts and ideas of things you want to say, but you just, it's almost like somebody has their mouth, their hand over your mouth and you just can't talk. This was very frustrating and and not knowing what that disorder was, never knowing anybody else who had it was really hard for me. And so I think because I never had help with my selective mutism, that really ended up, even though I started to being able to talk, I started to deal with other mental health things like agoraphobia and just being scared of people and being scared of being in certain situations. And I would just give myself panic attacks and I had so much anxiety. So after I got help, 
for those things, I, I got some counseling because it got to like a really bad breaking point for me. And so once I got help, it was like a light switch for me <laughs> of like, I don't have to live chained to those things. Like God did not create me to live in fear. And that's what I had done my whole life is I just, I lived in fear. And so I really wanted to do something. I almost, I almost wanted to run in the other direction and just fully, you know, use my voice and use the abilities and the gifts that God had given me. I just really want to encourage you to go back to my archive and listen to Danielle tell her powerful story of how God brought her from selective mutism to glowing for Jesus. Uh, she definitely does glow for Jesus. Um, I could just sense the joy when I was talking to her. And I got to say that I, I feature a few interviews here at, at the outset of this episode. And one of the reasons for that is that doing interviews is one of my favorite aspects of this podcast. Uh, it's really exciting to come to you every week with the thoughts that God lays on my heart and the messages that he gives me to give to you. That's an exciting thing. But the most exciting thing about having a podcast is having a platform where other people can share their stories. And I'll never get sick of being a conduit of that kind. Well, my next clip is also an interview, and this one is with Amy Blackwell. And this is one of these interviews that I think is one of the more amazing stories of how I got the interview. And the reason that I say that is because Amy was featured on Unshackled, which is a weekly radio show uh, that's done by Pacific Garden Mission. And I heard her story, and it resonated with me. So as I am wont to do, I looked her up. I found her Facebook page, followed her Facebook page, realized she did a podcast, started following that, made a request from her that I might be able to come on to her podcast because I was looking to expand the reach of speaking for him. And I thought, what better way than to be on someone else's podcast and get the word out about mine? Well, it turned out that her podcast went into hiatus for personal reasons shortly after we connected. And so after a few weeks, I asked her if she would be willing to be interviewed by me. And so I was able to share this powerful two-part interview with my audience. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to it in its entirety. Well, uh, you, one thing that came out when I listened to your story on Unshackled, and you kind of alluded to it in the first answer, was how important perfectionism was to you and that the idea was put forth that uh, being perfect, in essence, was the way to please God. And mm -hmm. we know that that's not possible from a human perspective, but talk about how that began in your life and what what made that dangerous for you? Oh, gosh, yeah, looking back now, very obvious. But, um, no, growing up, I, uh, you know, I had my earthly father who – if I did all these things good and to the best of my ability, I received praise. So, um, you know, I, I loved God and I, I got saved when I was about 10 years old. 
And, um, but I always struggled with, am I saved? Am I really saved? Did I say it right? And so it was at a young age that I constantly, um, was making, you know, am I good enough? And so I would, um, look at other people's lives and I would go, okay, well, I don't want to do that. I'll never do that. So God, I'm going to show you that I'll be better than everybody else. Like I'm going to, I'm going to prove to you that I'm, I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm worthy, I guess could, I could say. Um, so yeah, it's constant panic. It was like, I would get nervous if uh, there was a song that would come on that was worldly. I mean, I, I would get panicky about, okay, well, should I watch this? Should I not watch this? And this started at a young age. And so, but because my daddy was so strict on so many things, um, you know, if we left the house and if my mom went shopping and bought something she shouldn't, it was just, just a constant panic. Like, okay, I have to do this to be in right standing with my, my daddy on, you know, my earthly father. So I was constantly in panic. Like I need to do this, this, and this, and this for, for God to look at me and be pleased with me. And because at a young age, I, I really, that's all I cared about was pleasing God and doing what he wanted me to do while I was here on earth. And I talk about um, David in the book. Um, and David was somebody I looked up to. And even though he had messed up so much, David did. Um, later on in life, I would look at his story and I thought, well, it's different um, because of, I guess, David and God's relationship. But um, yeah, it just, it created this, um, I knew I was saved, but I did not understand what grace truly was because I never could accept it. Um, and I thought I had to, I had to work for it. So obviously this dramatically affected your relationship with God. It's interesting that you brought up David uh, because with all of his failures, he is still referred to in the book of Acts after he's been gone for hundreds of years as a man after God's own heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what an encouragement that is to us. And it's it's really sad that as you were growing up, you couldn't see that God had the same view of you through Jesus So once again, just another powerful story that I got the opportunity to facilitate in telling. And we spoke for over an hour, so it's actually a two-part episode. And I would really encourage you to avail yourself of those episodes. Again, I will have the link on my blog for you to be able to enjoy this episode. And you can always find them at speakingforhim.com. This next clip that I want to share with you is not an interview, but it actually is one of the most exciting projects that I got to do ever. And it's another instance, as I was talking about earlier, where the pandemic really facilitated it. Uh, Because I did a dramatic reading several years ago of the Christmas Carol, and it was just really exciting how God brought together the right people to make it a reality. Ever since I did that, I had thought, well, I I like the idea of bringing literature to life. And especially if it's in the public domain, then we can take it and bring it to life unabridged, much like we do with audio Bibles. And so I 
wrestled for a little while with what would be the next project. And then I realized that Pilgrim's Progress was in public domain. So I chose that for my second project. And a couple different times we had tentatively scheduled to begin this project. We said, well, it's probably going to be recorded over four or five weeks and we need to make sure that we spend a little extra time in the studio to get it done. And, you know, I just want to get this done. But every time we were about to do it, uh, there was some upheaval with the podcast. First, Adam McNutt had to step away because he was not going to be available to do the show on a weekly basis. Then his replacement, Chad Cashman, um, stepped away and so I had to get a third co-host, Dan Van Zalen. And so the Pilgrim's Progress just did not get done in studio. Then the pandemic happens and I start using Zoom uh, multiple times a week. And we do some virtual theater for Master Arts on Zoom. And I get the idea of let's do the Pilgrim's Progress on Zoom. And so I took the time to script it out and split it into 10 episodes. And then we recorded them over a five week period. And this is just a little bit of the result. Sometimes they would deride. Sometimes they would chide and sometimes they would quite neglect him. Wherefore he began to retire himself to his chamber to pray for and pity them. And also to condole his own misery he would also walk solitary in the fields, sometimes reading, sometimes praying, and thus, for some days, he spent his time. Now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields that he was, as he was wont, reading in his book, and greatly distressed in his mind, and as he, he read, he burst out as he had done before. What shall I do to be saved? I also saw that he looked this way and that way as, as if he would run, yet he stood still, because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him. Wherefore dost thou cry? Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment, and I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Why not willing to die, since this life is attended with so many evils? Because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. And, sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment, and from thence to execution, and the thoughts of these things make me cry. If this be thy condition, why standest thou still? Because I know not whither to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Fly from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it, and looking upon Evangelist very carefully said, Whither must I fly? Evangelist pointed with his finger over a very wide field. Do you see yonder wicked gate? No. Do you see yonder shining light? I think I do. Well, keep that light in your eye, and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate, at which, when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now, 
He had not ran far from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and, and ran on, crying, Life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. The neighbors also came out to see him run, and as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, and some cried after him to return. And among those that did so, there were two that were resolved to fetch him back by force. The name of the one was obstinate, and the name of the other pliable. Now by this time the man was got a good distance from them, but, however, they were resolved to pursue him, which they did, and in a little time they overtook him. Neighbors, wherefore are ye come? To persuade you to go back with us. That can by no means be. You dwell in the city of destruction, the place also where I was born. I see it to be so. And dying there, sooner or later, you will sink lower than the grave into a place that burns with fire and brimstone. Be content, good neighbors, and go along with me. What? And leave our friends and our comforts behind us? Yes, because that all which you shall forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of that which I am seeking to enjoy. And if you will go along with me and hold it, you shall fare as I myself, for there, where I go, is enough and to spare. Come away and prove my words. What are the things you seek, since you leave all the world to find them? I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. And it is laid up in heaven and safe there, to be bestowed at the time appointed on them that diligently seek it. Read it so, if you will, in my book. Tush! Away with your book! Will you go back with us, or no? No, not I, because I have laid my hand to the plow. Come then, neighbor pliable, let us turn again and go home without him. There is a company of these crazed-headed coxcombs that when they take a fancy, by the end, are wiser in their own eyes than seven men that can render a reason. Do not revile. If what the good Christian says is true, the things he looks after are better than ours. My heart inclines to go with my neighbor. What? More fool still? Be ruled by me, and go back. Who knows whether such a brain-sick fellow will lead you? Go back. Go back, and be wise. And I'm just so thankful for how the Pilgrim's Progress turned out. And I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone that was involved in the project, many of whom I knew from my association with Master Arts Theater. And it was just so fun to use some time during the pandemic to record this wonderful story. Uh, one thing I will say here is that I do have my next project picked out. I did script last spring the entire book of Anne of Green Gables, and my goal was to record that last summer. Everybody got understandably more busy because the world was open up again and people began to assume regular schedules. So it was really difficult to get Anne of Green Gables recorded. And so sadly, it is still waiting to be done. But my goal is to begin recording on April 1st or around there next year. 
because I would like to be able to bring it to you in late 2022 or early 2023. I really have a passion for literature and a passion for theater, and I think these these multi-voice recordings are a good combination of the two. The next two clips that I have to share with you are clips from my Back to Basics series, which ended up comprising a lot of my summer. And the reason that I felt the need to do this kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier when we were talking about the sheriff putting a Bible verse in his office and the freedom from religion, people wanting him to take it out. And that is the need for a moral standard. And even people that claim Christ often don't have a moral standard. So we started back to basics by talking about the five solas of the Reformation. The Bible says it this way, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a wonderful reality that is. So now let me give you a little bit of an introduction as to why I wanted to do this series on the five solas. And just like any other series that we do, it may sometimes not come sequentially because other topics or interview opportunities come up. That's just a fact of the way we do things here on the Speaking for Him podcast. But I'm very excited to be able to begin this series. And this actually happened um, because on Father's Day, um, we watched a, a, a documentary about the Reformation. Um, and it was told through the lens of someone who was formerly Amish because the Amish was actual, the Amish were actually a group um, that came out of the Reformation. And it was really interesting to watch this documentary and to hear about that and then just to see kind of the sadness of how how uh, some of these groups, particularly the Amish, as they were speaking about it in this documentary, who came out of the Reformation and they're like, we want to uh, get away from the Catholic Church's notion that only the priests can tell you what to believe, only the clergy can read the Bible. And then the Amish actually ended up embracing a lot of what they had originally left. And in the course of this documentary, um, Joseph Gruber, who was the director and the creator of the documentary, he talked about the five solas, which are basically five principles that are scripturally based, that the reformers um, based their rebellion against uh, the organized Catholic Church of the time on. And I just have been thinking a lot about how basic those beliefs are and how important it is to believe the right thing and to teach the right thing. We are told in Paul's epistles, I think it was in Timothy, that he told Timothy to commit the things that I've taught you to faithful men that they may be able to teach others also. 
And when I first started this podcast, the goal was to teach truths faithfully to draw people closer to the Lord Jesus. And so that is my heart behind starting this series, Back to Basics. The Five Solas is where we're starting the Back to Basics series. And I'm just really excited about where God is going to bring it in the coming weeks. The next clip that I have to share with you, it was a continuation of Back to Basics after we were done with the Five Solas, setting the foundation for what we believe uh, as Bible-believing uh, people who take the Bible literally. Then I went into the subtopic of 10 things that the modern church purports as biblical that fall short of being so and are, in essence, false teachings. And this came out of a video that I watched on 10 Problems with Joel Olstein. although I endeavored to the best of my ability not to make the series a bash fest about Joel Olstein because no matter who is teaching these things, they were still wrong. And the first one we went to was this idea that, again, is even purported in some churches that man is basically good. Joel Olstein said in the video that I referenced earlier that he believed that 99.9% of people were good people. But what does the Bible actually say about this? Let's first look at our quote of the day. Our quote of the day, it comes from Mark 10.18, and it says, And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is no one good but one, and that is God. And so this is part of a conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the reality is, as Jesus outlays, that there's nothing the young man can do of himself to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, well, you've heard it said to, to keep the law, and he goes through some of the commandments, and the man says, well, all these things have I kept from my youth. But Jesus sensed a pride in this man, uh, because of his riches. And so he tells the man to sell everything he has and give to the poor, and then you will have eternal life. Because the thing that was keeping this man from embracing eternal life was his riches. He was dependent upon his riches. And he had pride in that regard. And so Jesus was getting to the heart of the matter. And it's interesting that in this story, the man goes away sorrowing, because he had much, much riches. And then it says this, and Jesus looking at him loved him. So this is a situation where Jesus loves this guy enough to tell him, hey, you need to get things right with me and this is how you do it. 
Uh, because I'm sure that he, from his perspective, he thought, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Maybe there's just one last thing I need to buy or do, or maybe I just need to get in right with this teacher and then I can have eternal life. And Jesus says, no, you need to get your heart right and then you can have uh, eternal life. And so I I just think that's a good way to start here because we often say, well, this person's a good man or a good woman. But Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. So this is actually a, a kind of a another situation where we might not think about it this way, but Jesus is basically claiming deity at this point. So that was a really good series to unpack some of the things that we can falsely believe about the Christian faith. And sometimes it's not even an active belief, but more of a passive belief where we don't take the time to examine the scriptures and then we can allow ourselves to be led away into untruth. Paul commended the Bereans because they searched the scriptures daily to prove the things that he said were so. They didn't just say, this is the Apostle Paul, he wouldn't say the wrong thing to us, so we're just going to believe him. No, they took the time to study. So we can learn a lot from them, and we can learn a lot from this study. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to this series. It's one that I uh, am very passionate about, and really in a lot of ways is the basis for the ministry, because without truth, there is no ministry of speaking for him. Speaking for him is predicated on the truth, and the truth is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said while he was on earth. This next clip is an interview I want to share with you from Joseph Reed, the founder of Broken People and the writer of the book Broken Like Me. And I really appreciated uh, this interview. There were a lot of similarities we had in our views for ministry and the way God led us to ministry. And we were actually connected through one of my former students at the Potter's House. This is her father. And it was just such a privilege to speak to him. So here's a little bit of that conversation. And that's a great introduction to the main topic of our discussion today, and that is your ministry, Broken People. So why don't you walk us through the story uh, that led to you um, starting this organization, and we'll go from there. Yeah, well, first, uh, you know, I, I don't actually know the definition of what a ministry is, but I really avoided that term when I first started it. Um, and I'll explain why in a minute. But um, I had a friend, he was, uh, my friend Nathan and I, super close. Uh, He has a mental illness, I have a mental illness. And we were just two peas in a pod. And he was the type of guy that would just give you the shirt off his back. It was a really big shirt, like a a quadruple X, because he was a big guy. So it could probably, like, his one shirt would probably clothe, like, a whole city. I don't know, but it was pretty impressive. but he was just that generous a guy to the point of, of, of fault where he would um, give and give and give and give. And 
you know, him and I, we were in and out of mental hospitals ourselves. So I was in a psych ward uh, three separate occasions, and he was in probably four or five times. And we were just there supporting each other. And, you know, I was not so, I, I use the term come out of the closet in terms of my mental health. I wasn't so uh, open or courageous about sharing my struggle. But this guy right here, Nathan, our worship pastor, was just insanely open and vulnerable about his struggle. And on January 25th, 2018, I got a phone call that, that my friend, my best friend, my worship pastor, my confidant had taken his own life. And I felt abandoned and I felt angry. And it was in that moment that I, I, after I got that call that I received probably a more even clear call from God to, to do something about my struggle and to be less hidden about it. Cause I've had a, a support system around me for years that that's been superb. So it's not like I, I didn't have a group of people that would, that I could fall back on if I was struggling. But when I lost my friend, Nathan, like that was the one dude that could relate to me. And at that moment, when he passed away, I knew I was going to do something related to mental health. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a book. So I started writing a book. So my friend Clarkson, our daily bread ministries, he said to me, um, you know, do you want to, do you want to write a book? and have an impact on only the reader, or do you want to have a ministry? And I said, I, I, the last thing I want is a ministry. And the reason why is because I feel like Grand Rapids, West Michigan, has enough ministries already here that we just need better people to run the ministries we have. But at the same time, I was like, you know, I have a heart to reach people. And so I said, I, I, I said to him, I'll start a thing. That's my actual word. I'm starting a thing. And because when I'm at my lowest point, when I'm feeling depressed, I feel broken. And I think about how Jesus was broken and bruised for our transgressions. You know, Jesus, the original broken person for us. Um, I, I, I couldn't think of a better way. And, and some people could look at it as, salt, as insulting. They could be like, oh, I'm not broken. I just, I'm just, you know, I just struggle. I have a mental illness or whatever. And, and I understand that. I can relate to that. But there are people in, that, are, that are like me. Broken Like Me, which is the title of my book, um, who, who can relate to that. And I wanted to create a place, an organization, an environment, a platform, so that when people looked for people that felt broken like them, they would find me in my community and, 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 and find a family uh, to encourage them. Because it's not only people that struggle with mental illness. It's people with uh, physical disabilities and people with... Uh, that, that go through abuse. Um, it's a lot, it's a, it's a wide variety. Being broken describes a lot of things, including sinful nature. But um, yeah, so that's, I, I, I started writing the book and then broken people started and then, you know, people just started joining. And now we have people from 44 countries that are part of broken people. Um, we have a, a great team of directors and moderators that help run the program. And we have in-person meetings that happen and, so I want to thank Joseph Reed for sitting down with me and talking about his book and his ministry. I definitely believe strongly that we are all broken people, and it's only as we acknowledge that and allow God to use us that we can truly uh, be healed and be useful in the kingdom of God. 
as we move along through our highlights, one of the things I like to do on the Speaking For Him podcast is do film reviews. And I had the privilege um, about a month ago to see The Reluctant Convert, which is a movie about C.S. Lewis. And our quote of the day comes from C.S. Lewis. And in this quote, he is talking about his conversion experience. And you'll notice that it's kind of different from what a lot of other people experience when they are converted to Christ. He says, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I really enjoyed this movie. Um, the other thing I will say is that stylistically, it's a very different type of film. It's kind of docudrama in the sense that Max McLean as the older C.S. Lewis is talking about his life um, growing up, and then you see the other scenes happening behind him, and sometimes he's literally stepping into each scene uh, that you are seeing. I don't think he does it with every single one, but in a lot of cases, he, he steps into the scene and his younger self walks right past him. So it's a very interesting style, and it's kind of reminiscent of the Christmas Carol when Ebenezer Scrooge is looking into his past. And I guess it kind of reminded me of that in a way because it talked about him, uh, and it, it kind of implied that he was raised in a Christian home because he makes a statement, I ceased to be a Christian at 14. And I think um, he wasn't necessarily a born-again Christian at that point, um, but he ceased to care about the things of God after what happened with his mother passing away from an illness and with his, his father's response made him a, a little bit more of a rough man than perhaps he was before. His wife died, and so all of these life circumstances contributed to C.S. Lewis concluding that he was an atheist. And so this film basically takes us through the journey of him being an atheist and not being able to comprehend there's a God, and then coming to a place finally through the influence of a friend who was also an atheist but then became a deist, and he then he had to consider the reality of God. And then once he'd considered the reality of God, then uh, he had to consider, well, who is God? And and then he was faced with the challenge of uh, Jesus couldn't be a good teacher um, and not be God because he claimed to be God and a good teacher doesn't lie. Um, that's why C.S. Lewis would later say Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or who he said he was. So these are the things that C.S. Lewis was faced with. Now, the interesting thing about this film, um, as we're talking about positives, first of all, I, I felt like 
Um, Max McLean was really the embodiment of C.S. Lewis. Um, I haven't really been able to like hear C.S. Lewis talk or seen a lot of photographs of him, but I just felt like I was watching C.S. Lewis tell a story. And so obviously Max McLean resonates with the character very well. And I thought that it was very well cast. I just really enjoyed the fact that I could go to theaters and see the story of C.S. Lewis. Um, and it really impacted me to see the journey that he had to God. It really shows me how much God cares about us because God did not give up on C.S. Lewis. He kept pursuing him and pursuing him until the end. Well, I have just one more clip to share with you today. We've come full circle a couple weeks ago. I started my Christmas celebration uh, talking about 10 of my favorite Christmas songs of all time. And here is a little clip of that. All right. Well, as I said, today's episode is the first part of a two-part episode, which will feature 10 of my favorite Christmas songs of all time. As I said in the intro, it's very hard to say that these are my 10 favorite because there are so many different Christmas songs and so many different ways you could go with this discussion. Uh, So this is by no means an exhaustive list. Um, So I have um, numbers 10 through 6 today as well as a few honorable mentions. And again, even the numbers are just a way of organization Uh, Not an indictment on how I feel about each song, although the ones toward the top of the list are definitely toward the top for a reason. So let's get started um, by talking about Silent Night. And Silent Night is a classic song. I think I read somewhere that it's one of the most covered songs. It's definitely one of the most listened to songs. at Christmas time, and here's a little bit that I have found about Silent Night. It says, Halfway through December 1818, the church organ in St. Nicholas in Obendorf, 11 miles north of Salzburg in what is now Austria, broke. A popular version of the story claims that mice had eaten out the fellows. The curate, 26-year-old Joseph Moore, realized it couldn't be repaired in time to provide music on Christmas Eve. He told his troubles to his friend, a headmaster and amateur composer named Franz Gruber, while giving him as a present a poem he had written two years earlier. Gruber was so taken by the rhythm of the poem that he set it to music, and on Christmas Eve, there was music after all. Moore played his guitar while the pair sang the song. It was the first public performance of Style Night, or as we know it, Silent Night. And it is believed that this carol has been translated into more than 300 languages in the world and is one of the most popular carols of all time. So we start today with Silent Night.
So there you have the year 2021 in retrospective on the Speaking for Him podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this walk down memory lane with me and that you will stay tuned in 2022 for another year, Lord willing, of great excitement and even bigger surprises. You know, I really want to up my interview game, and so if you know of someone that has a great story that they would like to share with us, please let me know when you hear the contact information roll at the end of the show, because I would like to get in touch with them and schedule an interview. So with that in mind, I hope that you have a great new year and that you stay safe and that as always, you keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 